Hi everyone, before we get started, I just have a couple of announcements. We have open registration for two webinars this fall. First, we have Young and the Environment with Dennis L. Merritt, PhD, LCSW, and Jungian Analyst on Friday, October 1st, 1 to 4 p.m. Chicago time via Zoom. The second is Young, Buddha, and the Middle Way, a historical and personal journey with Barbara Friedman, PhD, and Jungian Analyst, Friday, November 5th, 1 to 3 p.m. Chicago time via Zoom. Um, so if you're interested in any of those, please feel free to register. Um, also, just to let you know, if you're already considering um, beginning analytic training, we will be opening applications for analytic training this September. So uh, if that's something you have been considering, you are welcome to start looking into, into it in more detail. Applications will open um, sometime in December, and we're still finalizing the process as we're moving applications to be uh, completely online these days. So that takes a little time for the analyst training program, which is a pretty hefty application uh, process. So there are a lot of details, but that will be opening uh, opening up in September. So and, and applications are accepted through January 15th, 2022. So I just want to put that in your brains if you've been thinking about it and perhaps getting ready to apply. Uh, that's the schedule for that. Okay, thanks. Welcome to the Jung Anthology Podcast by the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Animating Female Archetypes and Telling Women's Stories, an interview with Elizabeth Lesser. Patricia Martin will be uh, introducing Elizabeth Lesser in a second, so I'm going to skip that part for now, but I want to jump directly to reading a few um, submissions from our listeners. Uh, thank you to everybody who's done that so far. We continue to get those. so. If you submitted one recently, I might not actually get to it for a few months because uh, there's a little bit of a backlog, which is great. I really appreciate everyone who's doing it. Uh, from an anonymous uh, listener in Massachusetts, I encountered Young in high school by reading Fifth Business, then again in a college humanities course in which we read selections from Man and His Symbols. It felt meaningful and useful, so I kept engaging with Young sporadically. I don't know that I'm on a journey, just interested. Another listener from New Zealand says, I use this podcast for my own help in individuation, however also to understand the deeper nature of human existence, and in this way I also inform my creative writing. I am not a psychologist, although I studied some psychology at university. I am a teacher. My passion is creative writing. My writing will always be influenced by Jung's ideas. Now in middle age, the first third of my life was swamped in depression, addiction, and ambivalent self-sabotaging behavior. Having a narcissistic father and an overly protective, paranoid BPD mother were crucial factors in my development. Nowadays, I am fairly happy and excited by the journey ahead. I find this podcast very helpful and always look forward to listening to it 
in the wee small hours when I cannot sleep. I'm looking for more of the same, really, intelligent analysts or scholars who explain Jung in a clear manner. And they add, it may sound a little strange, but I love the recorded lectures you present on tape recorders and dictaphones from the 1990s or even earlier. I get a nostalgic feeling. Uh, so thanks to uh, people who continue to submit. Please do. There's a link in the show description that you can use. Um, and also, I want to say that this podcast is free for all and exists because of your support. Um, you can make a donation to the Institute on our website or become a member, which includes discounts to webinars and downloads from the store. Um, or you can just purchase something from the store that interests you. Those store purchases are really help us keep the Institute running and uh, support the podcast. So thanks. Now let's get to the interview. Hello and welcome to Jungianthology, the podcast of the C.G. Jung Institute. I'm Patricia Martin, and I'll be your host for this episode. And I'm delighted to be talking with Elizabeth Lesser. Many of you will know her name, but let me give you some background on Elizabeth before I open the conversation. Elizabeth is a best-selling author, and she's the co-founder of the Omega Institute. It's a renowned conference center, retreat center, and it's located in upstate New York, Rhinebeck, in fact. Elizabeth's first book was The Seeker's Guide, and she distilled lessons learned into a potent guide for growth and healing. Her New York Times bestselling book, Broken Open, which I read, and uh, I think I read it twice, in fact, <laughs> when I hit a dark period in my life, but Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow, has sold over half a million copies and translated into 20 languages. Her third book, Marrow, Love, Loss, and What Matters Most, she wrote about her sister's bone marrow transplant that she, she helped her sister with. Her newest book, which we're talking about today, is entitled Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are the Storytellers, the Human Story Changes. It reveals how humanity has outgrown its origin tales and its hero myths, and it empowers women to trust their instincts and find their voice. Because so much of Carl Jung's theories invoked mythology and fairy tales, and his ideas about the collective unconscious deal with the interplay between the feminine and the masculine. We're so eager to invite Elizabeth onto the podcast. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here with you. <laughs> Thanks. So you might be best known for co-founding the Omega Institute in 1977. During the early times of the self-help movement in American culture, 1977, I'm thinking back. And since then, the Institute has been at the forefront of, and I have to read this list, Holistic education, workshops and trainings in integrative medicine, prevention, nutrition, mind-body connection, meditation and yoga, cross-cultural creativity, spirituality, and women's empowerment. But my real question is, I want to go back to the very beginning. <laughs> what inspired you to step on that path? Um, well... I was raised in a family of um, intellectuals, uh, atheists. There was like a, um, 
equation in our family. If you are intelligent and a smart person, you therefore will not have one spiritual bone in your body. It was all hogwash. It was all the opiate of the masses. My parents were like socialist intellectual New Yorkers. And family of four girls, one really powerful father, my grandmother and great aunt lived with us like it was all women and then this very strong patriarchal father. And I don't know why, I, I, get, I was born a little spiritual seeker. I was the weirdo in the family. Like I would tag along with my Roman Catholic next door neighbors to mass because I was obsessed from like the earliest age of thinking, well, who am I? Where do I go when I die? Where did I come from? How do you live a good life? But you couldn't talk about that in my family. You know, you could talk about Shakespeare, maybe that was the closest you could get <laughs> poetry. But the minute I left home and got to college, I started um, reading the great spiritual texts. And it was a time in American history in the early 1970s when gurus were washing up on the shores of America and Eastern meditative yogic traditions were beginning to infuse our culture. And I thought, yeah, I want one of them. I want to get me a guru. <laughs> and, um, and I did. I was one of those hippie kids. You know, I, le I was at Columbia University. I left college, much to my mother's horror. And I went to California and I got involved with a Sufi teacher, Sufism being the mystical dimension of Islam. I started reading a whole lot of stuff. I started reading a lot of Jung, actually. And um, the teacher that I had had this idea to start. Uh, he, he was a very brilliant man, Pirvalayat Khan. And he had this idea. He wanted to resurrect the ancient schools of Alexandria. And he would start an institute in the United States that was uh, holistic and bringing the great spiritual traditions, but also focusing on science and medicine and things like that. And he put myself and my ex-husband in charge of it. I was 22. Oh I didn't my. know anything about anything. None of us did. But we started tiny, just a few workshops. Um, but it was one of those ideas that like took off so fast. I've always thought of Omega like a monster, a dragon that's we're holding on to its tail and it's just been dragging us for 40 years. <laughs> um, the most recent hell ride has been how to keep a retreat center alive during a pandemic. So it never, it never uh, has stopped fascinating me, um, bringing people together in community to explore the inner world. So you started then uh, another institute, sort of an offshoot, which was the Omega's Women's Leadership Center. And so how did that grow out of the bigger retreat mm -hmm. center? Um, hearkening back to the female society I was brought up in with the one strong father, for some reason, I also was like the designated one who stood up to my father. And so when I got to college, I wasn't only interested in spiritual seeking, I also became a feminist and I have never stopped being a proud feminist, meaning someone who works to um, free women within the culture and within ourselves to be everything that um, God has given us to be, 
a full human being, uh, fully animated by the feminine and the masculine, the anima, the animus. I always love how Jung took the word anima and animus from the word animate mm -hmm. and, you know, to animate the different parts of yourselves. So I always spent a lot of time when curating uh, workshops and conferences at Omega, uh, I was very interested in how the female perspective and uh, values have been suppressed in culture. And um, so I've created a lot of stuff at Omega around that. And then about 20 years ago, I put together a conference called Women and Power. Those two Great combination together <laughs> made me really uncomfortable. Like women in power, like I'm not powerful, but actually I want to be powerful. So this tension within women, I want power, power meaning um, the animating spirit to do what I want to do in the world, to make a difference in the world, to have agency in the world. We wanted it as women but it, especially 20 years ago when I started this conference, I, I would never admit, yes, I want power. It seemed like the worst thing a woman could admit. So I thought, I'm going to create a one-off one conference on this. And I invited Anita Hill, who was still very much a, uh, an important figure in American culture. She had just finished um, with the trial the, the hearing on Congress um, with the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court nomination. And uh, also I invited Eve Ensler who wrote the vagina monologues. I tried to like pick these different, you know, Anita Hill, the political, legal, uh, Eve Ensler, the artistic um, activist and a whole bunch of other women speakers. And to my surprise, hundreds of women signed up and it was just like, wildly exciting. So I did it again the next year and 2000 people came to a conference in New York City. And wow. we've never stopped. We've had women from around the world in every arena from the arts to politics and everything in between. And um, out of that conference, because I thought, wow, I put so much effort into this every year. And then the, it's like, you know, cooking Thanksgiving dinner takes you three days and then everybody eats it in 20 minutes. <laughs> you're sitting there and you're like, wow, what did I do that for? Um, so I decided and we decided, me and my colleagues at Omega, to, um, to create a Women's Leadership Institute within Omega that offers all sorts of trainings. So that it, it, it could live a much larger. Yes. And, and we bring a lot of leaders, especially um, marginalized women leaders who are trying to create these amazing nonprofits in their cities and countries. We, we, had, we had since we've been decimated by the pandemic, but we had a, a very vigorous scholarship program so that we could take what we've been learning and, and spread the riches among people who couldn't afford it. So when you were talking about the word power and sort of putting that on and really, really wearing it, uh, it, you know, it reminded me of a, a phrase once I heard 
uh, Marie Wilson, the former executive director of the Ms. Foundation for Women, she said, you know, the new scarlet letter for women is A for ambition. We're not allowed to have it. And so when I was reading your most recent book, Cassandra Speaks, you begin with the ambition that is captured in the male driven canon of Western thought. You know, you, you, can you tell that story about going into the basement for, for other reasons and then discovering that you needed to really understand the origins of power first? Yeah, that's very Jungian, isn't it? Going into the basement. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, one of my sons, my youngest son, went to a college called St. John's College. It's the Great Books School. There's mm-hmm. two campuses, one in Santa Fe, one in Annapolis, Maryland. And they just read the Western canon. They start with the Greeks and they read it in ancient Greek. And it's it's really a classical education in the United States, probably. I think the University of Chicago has a similar program in it. Um, anyway, when he was going to that school, I was um, aware of how uneducated I was in a lot of the real classical Western thinking, whether it's the Greeks or um, the Romans, uh, a lot of literature. And um, I read some when he was in school, but uh, one day I went down into the basement looking for something because I was writing um, a keynote speech for women in power. And I was looking for a particular book and I opened his boxes of college, uh, his curriculum. And there were all these books, Aristotle, Socrates, uh, the great Greeks, the great Romans. And I started reading them. I'm sitting there. I actually was sitting in a rocking chair that I had nursed my kids in. And I'll never forget that feeling as I read these texts about power. And they actually map out what I consider to be the abuses of power, domination without thinking about who you're dominating and how it's affecting people, using warriorship and um, violence. Uh, Violence and warriorship are synonymous in so many of the descriptions of power and leadership in these male texts. And they all are male texts, whether it's the Chinese, the the, uh, art of war, or all of the Greeks and the Greek myths and the Odyssey and the Iliad. There is this synonym of, of violence and leadership. And I was felt so naive. I was like, you mean there's a method to this madness? There are (laughs) books expressing how to be a violent dominating leader and that that means means leadership. I took all those books, I cleaned them up, I brought them up and I made a deep study of it as a way of saying, look, people wrote these texts. People had these ideas. They did not fall out of the sky as like, Ah, this is what a leader should be. No, very strong, dominant men wrote these books. Some of it's great, some of it's brilliant, but it's half the sky of humanity. Women's voices are 
profoundly and obviously missing from the texts that we still use. We use it in business and we use it in war and we use it in leadership and we use it in every country all around the world. And there- It is an archetype, right? It is. This is what makes it an archetype. And in fact, as you're, as you're describing this, I'm thinking to myself, oh my, you know, when you start to list texts like the Odyssey, the idea of adventure is indeed a male construct. We're seeing it right now with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, who are like, well, we screwed up here on earth. It's a real mess. We don't have anything more to extract out of the ground and the skies are polluted. And we better go somewhere else and do it there. Right. And I'm like, really, guys? You're <laughs> going to take multiple billion dollars that could be used to, to reinvigorate Eden here on earth and teach people emotional intelligence and how to get along and how to share resources and not and put it into clean energy. You're going to follow um, the Odyssey myth again. That archetype is going to prevail still. Have you not done any incorporating of your anima into your life? Come on. But then you decided to take the myth of Cassandra and bring it to light and animate it. And in fact, title your book about it. And the myth of Cassandra, so many of these myths, myth of psyche, these myths are much lesser known and understood um, because of the history you just described. So I think it's beautiful that you chose Cassandra's myth to, to sort of drive your stake into the ground. So yeah. talk about her, tell her story. I will. I chose a few myths. I could have chosen so many because they're rampant. Uh, the missing voice of women in mythology. I chose a few. I chose um, Adam and Eve, and I chose Pandora, and I chose Pygmalion and Galatea, and I chose Cassandra. And I didn't know I was going to call the book Cassandra until I had an experience. I gave a speech again at Women in Power Conference, and the person who was going to follow me um, <clears throat> is, um, oh, help me brain, uh, the founder of the Me Too movement. Uh, well, I'll remember it. Anyway, very powerful woman. I was sort of afraid to be speaking before her because I admire her so much. And she had been so in the news recently because the Me Too movement was really um, on fire at that time. And I told the story of Cassandra in the speech. And I said, this person, Tamara Burke, she is our new Cassandra. She is speaking. She was not listened to for years. And finally, the world is listening to her. And this time, unlike Cassandra, we're going to make some changes because we're listening to her. And when she came onto the stage and I was leaving, she turned to me and she said, that was everything. That speech was amazing. You got to make that, you got to let people know about that speech. And I thought I kind of got her blessing. Nice. And that's when I thought I'm going to call the book Cassandra Speaks. 
um, Cassandra was a um, mythical creature. She was not a real person. Mm -hmm. She was in Greek myths, and therefore she was written by a man. She was told by men. Her story was made up by men. I always feel I have to say this because people think of the myths in the Bible as something that was just like always there. Well, no, it was a story people made up to try to make sense of life. That's what our guiding myths are all about, as Jung spoke about so brilliantly. They are the archetypes. They're us trying to figure out the archetypal energy in the world. But only. Uh, but I often wonder, though, with, with uh, myths about women being told by men, do we just immediately animate them as, as something historical and somewhat real because we're so hungry for them? Yeah, you know, we, exactly. we devour them and make them our own. And, and so then, of course, you know, we imagine them as being something other than just a story, but the story itself has purpose. And, and so Cassandra's story is really interesting, I think. Well, she was um, the most beautiful daughter of King Priam of Troy. And Troy and Greece were always at war. And um, all the men, the gods and the mortals were after the mortal princess, Cassandra. She was so beautiful, but she didn't want to be married. She wanted to serve the goddesses and remain chaste. And and that was her dream in life. Everyone was wooing her, especially Zeus and um, Zeus's son, Apollo, right? Apollo, Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, Apollo offered her a gift and it was a gift she felt she couldn't refuse. He said, I will make you uh, clairvoyant. You will see into the future. You will be able to tell your people what you see. You will be a great leader because you'll be clairvoyant. You'll be a prophetess. She wanted that. And so she said, yes, not understanding that that meant she would be his bride. And he immediately tried to take her to bed And she said, no, and he was furious. And so he cursed her. He said, you're still gonna be clairvoyant, but no one will believe you when you speak it. Right. And therefore she went slightly mad. She saw the Trojan War. She saw what would happen. She saw all of her family being tortured and killed. She saw the city in fire and ruin and she would say it and they would all think she was crazy. And um, she went mad and eventually at the end of the Trojan War, she was raped and taken as a prisoner. Um, And sort of the story, the take home from that story is, yeah, women, you can speak your mind and you usually actually do know what's going on, but nobody's gonna believe you. So it's sort of like the earliest gaslighting Mm -hmm. uh, story. You know, like you speak the truth, but no one believes you. And so you you feel kind of crazy in the culture. Like, I see what's happening with patriarchy. I see what's happening with climate change, you know, and all the things that women often and men who are in touch with their anima, we feel it in our hearts. We feel it in our bodies and in our intuition. But up until quite recently, a woman speaking the truth was basically thought of as a witch or a Cassandra or mm-hmm. Pandora, 
you know, Pandora opened the box from curiosity and all the evils of the world came or Eve followed her desire for beauty and love and, and, and nourishment and oh, oh, human beings were cursed. Because right. of that, everybody died, including Jesus. Like it, the, 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 the guiding texts have told women, don't believe yourself and don't talk. But then I think you uh, later in the book, you begin to talk about, well, what's the remedy? You know, what's, where are we going next with this? Because clearly there's not only room for women's voices, the space is opening for, you know, the seedlings of what might look like a, a very different society, but you call first for a revolution of values, and I thought this was such an interesting turning point, especially because you open it with a quote from Marion Woodman. And for anybody who's listening, who's a Marion Woodman fan, um, you, you'll pay special attention. But for those of you who are listening who might not know who Marion Woodman is, she was herself uh, in some ways had mystic gifts. She was a Jungian and she devoted her career to women's issues and understanding the the feminine principle and you know she she helped women with thing, everything from perfectionism um to uh neurosis around food disorders eating disorders and so she really opened space in in the, in the realm of jungian theory to introduce feminine principles and and i love you i i'll read this this quote that you have right at the beginning of that chapter i see the repression of the feminine principle as the biggest problem on the planet and since the planet has become a global village power alone isn't going to work anymore we will destroy ourselves marion woodman so why did you choose Marion Woodman to, to kind of turn the tide in your own book? Well, you know, having been like a kid in a candy shop at Omega Institute for more than 40 years and all of the great teachers coming through, I really early on in my 20s knew I, I, I'm going to focus on a few things or I could just mm -hmm. become like, you know, a, a dilettante in the supermarket and Marion Woodman was one of my most important teachers over the years. She came to Omega many, many times, leading her own workshops. She came with Robert Bly and Robert Moore mm. and John Sanford and the whole mytho-poetic men's movement in the 80s. Uh, she came with Thomas Moore and James Hillman. Um, I put together quite a few conferences with Jungians. And I always had Marion because there were just so few women yes. in the lexicon and the and in the lineage of American Jungians. Um, I'm not a Jungian, so you may say, oh yeah, but what about, what about, what about? I mean, Maureen Murdoch, uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, people like that. But I, I would always look, where are the women Jungians? Because I'm such a deep fan of Jungian mm. thought, and, and I've read so much about it. Anyway, um, I chose Marion for that quote about, it can't just be about power anymore, because she goes on in that same 
uh, part of one of her books where she talks about love and power, that power without love is going to destroy the planet. And when I talk about a revolution of values, you know, I am a feminist, but I am also what I've been calling recently a femininist. So it doesn't what does roll that off, mean? Doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> femininist. Like I'm not interested in women getting into the halls of power, getting our foot in the door, and then just turning into the very things we would like to change. You know, Nietzsche said, "Be careful when fighting dragons; you don't become one." Yes. Uh, I and and Marion Woodman talked a lot about this. Can we bring the feminine principle? into the halls of power. If we just put all our energy into getting into them, we will be um, perverted by power. Men are not the only ones who can be perverted by power. Anyone can be. We're seeing it in our own country. We're seeing so many women who work so hard to become senators or congressmen or CEOs. And then it's just the repeat of the same value system. So I'm interested in women and men redefining power, doing power differently, taking the best of what we've learned from the warrior culture, you know, being strong, being able, having a backbone, knowing who you are, being able to say no. I'm interested in that and getting rid of the violence and the domination and bringing some of the feminine spirit in. You know, what's interesting to me is we just, I don't know how many listening watched the Olympics, the Summer Olympics. When you and I are talking, the Summer Olympics just ended. And I felt that Simone Biles was sort of the new hero. She represents to me someone who has... um, a strong uh, male warrior quality. She has worked her little ass off to be the best. She knows how to compete. She knows how to win. And she loves that. But she realized in the midst of this competition that if she didn't listen to her heart, to her body, she could kill herself. She literally could kill herself because of the moves that Uh, gymnasts make. So she dropped out. She let go of power. She gave it over to her team. And she admitted to the world, I have weakness. Mm -hmm. There's just so much I can do. I can only do this as a team. I'm going to forgive my humanness. And she said it out loud. And to me, that's what we need to do as humans now. We got to break the warrior code. We have, to, we have to admit when we're weak. We have to say the world is out of balance. We need more of the feminine. And men have to want to do that. Men have, men have just as much of a capacity to be the new kind of leaders as women do. But they're so sadly burdened with trying to prove their masculinity all the time. It's, it's a burden. And uh, that's why I think women have to lead the way now. Well, I think that that you know the the day to day challenge for most women in and and men alike in doing that kind of partnering. I mean, I see it in uh, the young people whom I work with and I research. 
um, millennials as part of my work. But I, so I do see a change. I do see an openness where maybe there wasn't one. But overall, I think for anyone, I think that, that this would be true of women too. If we were living in a matriarchy for, for centuries, right? You opened with talking about the canon of Western civilization, and it is purely written by men. So, you know, we will not probably have uh, a collective on awareness where men will wake up one day, um, or if women were running the society, wake up one day and say, hey, you know, I'm done with all this power. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be I'll release this. Nobody, I, I, yeah. You quote Machiavelli, and I think you said, you know, nobody wants less power. <laughs> you know, nobody wants less liberty. Nobody wants. So, I want you now to be Cassandra and tell me what you really see out there is the coming together of the anima and the animus, as the male and female spirits sort of work together. Mm-hmm. Well. I used um, Simone Biles as an archetype for me of a of a person who has united her her feminine and her masculine. And as you say, I think younger people are way ahead of my generation. And thank goodness, um, what's going on now with gender fluidity and trans people? I look at it from my perch of being someone in her sixties as like, wow, that's so, it's, I, I barely understand a lot of what's going on mm-hmm. and I'm sure it has its shadow too, mm-hmm. but I think it's on the right track towards um, men. And I see it, I see it in my own children. My, all three of my sons are fathers and they are fathering in an entirely new way. I remember when my first son had his child, his first child, and I said something to him like, you're being such a good mommy, because he was like right in there, changing the diapers, getting up at night. And he said, I'm not a mommy. This is what daddies do. And I see it in my daughters-in-law. They expect their husbands to be absolutely sharing in, in um, the world of nurturing, they expect it. So both the women and the men in younger generations have really changed their inner landscape, not all. And, you know, people say to me, well, is feminism still necessary? And I always say, um, as long as women don't feel safe walking down the road, as long as women are paid less than men for the same job. As long as when a pandemic comes, who stays home and gives up their job? The women. We are still living by the old stories. So I still feel we need both change on the inside where men and women own the anima and the animus and are enlivened by both. But we also need policy and um, activism. Right. So, yeah, I, I see enormous changes underfoot. And I also see like um, women and men are different. We are different. So it's not that uh, one day there will be no such thing as sex or gender. It's one day you're, uh, you will, whatever is animated within you, 
will be valued by the world. You know, beautiful vision. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was, you know, as I was reading your bio, I was thinking what an inspired life. If there was, if you decided to get a vanity plate for your car, I would, I would recommend inspired. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so as I listened to you share that vision of whatever animates you is honored. I also think about you as a little girl, maybe as a young mom, what was your first feminist act? Well, I think my first feminist act, I was probably like 12. And I told my father, uh, no, I am not hiking the White Mountains in New Hampshire with you this weekend. I'm staying home and going to a party. That was probably my first feminist act, standing (laughs) up to my father. Um, But my first... um, my first like kind of activism was when I was at Barnard College in the 19, early 1970s. And I uh, went on a march and it was being led by Gloria Steinem. And we were marching to the um, Playboy Club. I think it was like on 57th Street or something in New York City. And different women threw rocks through the window of the Playboy Club. And that was an amazing awakening moment for me because it was like, no, I don't want to be part of this. This this doesn't sync up with what I'm also learning now at a Zen center way downtown, like to be the change. Like I've got to integrate my inner work with my activism. I would say that's that has been my prevailing work and prayer that who I am on the inside would match up with who I am on the outside. So what I hope is that people listening to, to women like you, obviously very empowered and, and being the change, living the change uh, you want to see in the world, you're, you're forming new archetypes as you travel around the country, as you know, Zoom has kept us at home. But I noticed you, you know, you've, you've been on Zoom a lot talking about the books and the, especially this recent book. And I, I wonder if you were to leave us with, of all the stories you've told, all the people you've met in all your many inspired adventures, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Lesser, did, what's the one story that when you tell it, you could just tell it over and over again because it, it opens people's hearts? Wow. You know, <clears throat> One story comes to mind right away. It's probably not the story. I don't know if there is one, but it's the story I told in uh, my book before Cassandra called Marrow. I was my sister's bone marrow donor. Mm -hmm. And before I had my bone marrow extracted and it was put into her body so that perhaps she might live, she had very serious lymphoma. Um, we decided when we heard that what might happen when my bone marrow got into her body was that um, her body might uh, fight it, fight me and, or reject me. And we said to each other, it's called uh, rejection or attack is what happens Mm -hmm. with the cells. And we thought, wow, we're sisters. This is what we've done our whole life. We've rejected each other and attacked each other. (laughs) Maybe we could, 
try to clean up our relationship so that our bodies would learn. You know, it was a very woo-woo kind of thought, but we were, we'd try anything at that point. So we went into therapy with a, with a therapist actually, who was um, not a classical Jungian, but who had been very much affected by Jung psychotherapy. And we went through a series of therapeutic sessions with him where we said the difficult things to each other. And the reason why this story is meaningful to me right now is that we need to say difficult things to each other so that we could help our culture live. And there, there's so much division in the culture and we're going to slide into the worst of human behavior, which we have seen forever in history, mm-hmm. all the way down to genocides. If we can't reach across the otherness and talk to each other, and that's what my sister and I, we had to, otherwise she would die. It was a life or death thing. And we had these amazing conversations where we uncovered things we had done to each other maybe even unconsciously, and we said them aloud. And it was that miracle that all of you listening who are therapists know, when you put words to the shadow, miracles happen. And we put words to the shadow relationship that we have been dragging around behind us in our bags, as Robert Bly always used to say about the shadow. And we opened the bags and lo and behold, light and beauty and love came out and, I hope that this is what we can learn to do. We can take all the wisdom we've learned from psychotherapeutic teachings and spiritual teachings and actually apply them to be able to speak to the other so that we can heal uh, the country. Oh, Elizabeth, thank you for coming to speak to us today. Your words were soothing and healing and your vision is quite gorgeous. I want to say on behalf of the board of directors of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, we very much appreciate you spending time with us and uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you. I would love to. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2020 donors who gave at the contributing member level and above. Farah Anand, Usha and Ashar Beatty, Jackie Cabe Bryan, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, James Fidelibus, John Korolewski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, Karen West and James Taylor, and Ellen Young. If you would like to join our generous community of supporters, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.